I mean, it's one thing to say you're going to be really anti-illegal immigration, right? But if you've never sat across the table from an undocumented immigrant and heard their story and heard the things that they had to go through to get here, heard the things that they went through that propelled them to leave all that was familiar to them, right? To come to a different country, a new place, to seek out a new life. Until a person has heard that story, um, I, I could see how they might have very harsh and unbending views of immigration. But once you've heard that story and you've seen that human being and you said, man, if I were in your place, if I were in your shoes and I was experiencing the things that you experienced, heck, I would have done the same thing. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. Today's episode is a sort of special episode. It is very topical. In it, I interview an immigration lawyer. Um, It is Charles Shane Ellison. He goes by Shane, and he is absolutely awesome. You guys will love him. He is so intelligent and so informed about immigration law. He is the legal director at Justice for Our Neighbors in Nebraska. He is also an immigration law professor at Creighton University. And uh, he is just a heck of a dude that really cares about people and uh, and doing the right thing. So um, I will let the episode speak for itself. There's, there's so much to learn in this episode. I learned a ton and I hope you all do as well. One thing I want to note is that after the interview, Shane sent me an email wanting to correct one thing that he said during the interview. So I want to pass that all along to you. Um, in In the interview, you will hear us talking about the amount of refugees uh, in the world that end up in the United States and kind of the difficulty of the process for refugees to get into the United States and the difficulty of uh, vetting and all those sorts of things that are are in place. Um, In that portion, he mentions that 1% of the world's population of refugees get referred for resettlement and that only 1% of those gets resettled in the United States, which would be one in 10,000 refugees end up in the United States. Um, It is actually one in 1,000. So it's uh, 1% of the world's population refugees get resettled. And it is 10% of those that get resettled that can make it to the United States after a very, very um, intense screening process. And I will uh, put a link on my website to an article that he sent me uh, called Refugees Are Already Vigorously Vetted. I know because I vetted them, which is a great article uh, from somebody that uh, that just recently stopped vetting refugees, but goes over the whole process. Anyways, just wanted to clear that all up before we get started um, on to the episode. Here is Immigration Lawyer. Shane, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Blake. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, I just would like to know, are you doing all right? Like, how are you holding up, man? <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty wild and crazy uh, two weeks, um, to say the least. Uh, and yeah, we're doing okay. There's a lot of work, uh, a lot more than usual, and a fair amount of stress, both uh, as an attorney representing immigrants, as well as sort of vicariously on behalf of my clients. But um yeah, we're, we're holding up. I think uh, within the legal community, the advocacy community, our thought is 
you can either despair uh, or resist. And we're trying to be pretty concerted in that uh, latter option. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fantastic. So before we talk about everything that's going on right now, um, I think we should give people a background on what you usually do when things are not as crazy as they are right now. So what does an immigration lawyer typically do? Um, and like, what are kind of like the breadth and the different types of cases that you take? Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, by way of background, I would start off by saying that I'm a nonprofit immigration lawyer. And so uh, the sorts of cases uh, that I work on are going to be um, maybe a bit more specific or narrow than maybe uh, some private immigration attorneys. You know, the legal field is very specialized. And so immigration law itself is a pretty big area. And so there are lots of folks that specialize within that. Um, if you think about immigration law at a, at a very broad level, um, there are folks that do sometimes exclusively employment-based immigration. Um, there are folks that do family-based immigration cases. Uh, there are folks that do humanitarian-based cases. And then there's a smattering of cases that we call diversity cases, which are um, don't fit neatly into any of those other categories. So in terms of what I typically do, um, it's really a focus primarily on family-based and humanitarian-related immigration cases. Um, and so even within those areas, uh, there's, a, there's a pretty significant breadth of, of cases that I might work on. So in the family-based context, usually you're working with someone who has uh, a, a relative who's uh, abroad or perhaps here in the United States that doesn't have a form of immigration status in the U.S., and so then you're working with a family member who lives in the United States that's either a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident in most cases uh, to file some sort of petition to help their family member uh, either come here or gain status if they're already here. Um, and the rules relating uh, to consular processing, which is, is the term that we use to describe uh, the process of uh, applying for an immigrant visa to come to the United States from abroad or adjustment of status. Uh, can be fairly complex. And so there are from some individuals that just um, focus on practicing immigration law in that in that very narrow field of family-based immigration. I was going to say, um, it's so interesting that people would need to get a lawyer for that. It's like you, you feel like these should hopefully be things that if someone wants to come to this country, these are just processes, especially if they already had a family member that lived here, that these are processes that they should be able to figure out without needing needing a lawyer to figure it out for them, you know? Right. No, you would you would hope so. The <laughs> the Ninth Circuit has has famously said that immigration law is second, perhaps only to tax law in its level of complexity. And you know, you folks who who are who are listening in and maybe know of someone who's gone through the process will undoubtedly um, have experiences of individuals who've uh, navigated the system on their own. And so that does sometimes happen in a fairly straightforward and clean case. Um, but cases can get really complex and sort of. Uh, nasty quickly. And sometimes folks don't even realize if their case fits into one of those complex cases. So if they were one of the fortunate ones that had really straightforward facts, um, they might be able to do it on their own. But um, as an immigration lawyer, I, I always recommend at a minimum folks at least meet with an immigration attorney to, to, to get a sense for whether or not their case is one of those straightforward ones uh, or whether it would be better to have the assistance of counsel. So talk to us about these problems that typically come up for people then. What are the issues? Like you said that it can go smoothly, but that's kind of rare. Like, you know, oftentimes people will run into some sort of issue. What are these right. kind of common issues that people run up against and that you need to help with? 
Yeah, sure. And so, and then maybe just before I get to that, I'd say, you know, the kind of two predominant uh, uh, case types that we work on, one is family-based cases, the other are humanitarian cases. In the case of humanitarian cases, I would say it's a lot more rare for folks to um, be able to navigate those waters on their own. Um, so when I say humanitarian, I mean things like the U visa for certain victims of crime or domestic violence, T visa for human trafficking victims, uh, asylum applications for people who are seeking to be categorized as refugees from within the United States, um, applications for temporary protected status. Um, you know, many of those cases are going to be the types of cases that um, an individual needs a, an attorney to help them with. Right. Uh, so then to kind of segue then of some of the common uh, problems, I suppose, um, you know, in the family-based context, anytime individuals have uh, past entries and exits in the United States, that, that can, uh, depending upon the nature of those entries and exits, make their case a lot more complex. Um, if they've ever worked without uh, a period of authorization inside the United States, that's another complicating factor. Um, any kind of encounters with immigration on the border sometimes raises the possibility of additional issues. Hmm. Um, trying to think of... So of you're saying if they worked for a period undocumented, that's going to complicate things. How does anyone know if they worked for a period undocumented? Yeah, well, you know, so folks can apply for and be granted work authorization, um, but it, it, it can get very complex. So, for example, um, individuals who are working with authorization under uh, temporary protected status or what we call TPS, um, if those individuals continue to work past the expiration of their document, in most cases, they're going to be fine because TPS um, uh usually automatically extends the authorization to work, even though the document says it's expired, right? Okay. So kind of a non-intuitive outcome. Um, in other instances, that's not the case. So a person, for example, and this is not true right now, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment, but like, let's say six months ago, if you were working on a work permit that you obtained because of a pending asylum application, once that's expired, if you work past that date, you'd be working without authorization. But just to give you a flavor of how complex this is and fast changing, just a few weeks ago, a new rule was issued saying that individuals who have pending applications that were filed prior to the expiration and date of their existing document, those individuals get an automatic 180-day extension, like as a matter of law. So even though the card is expired right now, they're not working without authorization. So I just use that as an example to say wow. it's not always easy to tell whether you're working with or without authorization, right. even though that's should be a fairly straightforward thing. And those are certainly things that the person themselves are probably not going to know about. It's not like they're getting all you know the latest updates on immigration law. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And another really common problem, actually, are, are problems related to unauthorized presence or unlawful presence. Um, and this was actually a, a major issue in the Supreme Court battle last year uh, over the president, President Obama's uh, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, commonly referred to as the DAPA program. Um, and in a matter of, of uh, considerable contention in that case was whether or not the president uh, had the authority or was granting periods of uh, lawful presence to individuals covered under the program and whether that was even permissible. And um, the irony of the discussion is that, you know, there are a couple of provisions in the Immigration and Nationality Act that talk about unlawful presence and the various rules for tolling it. But then 
if you take a step further, the government had issues has has issued a series of policy memoranda that further construe what is and is not unlawful presence. The most recent policy memoranda goes on for 51 pages describing what is unlawful presence and what is not unlawful presence. And so, um, I mean, it's 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 quite complex. And so whether or not a person is or is not an unlawful presence uh, can be another thing that that is quite significant for purposes of their options under immigration law. Um, and that absent an immigration attorney that specializes in that area, you know, they wouldn't, I would think most folks would not be able to, to figure that out. So you're saying that a lot of times people will come to an immigration lawyer to just even find out, like, am I okay or not? Like, they, they don't even know if they themselves are okay, let alone if another family member or if another person can come over. It's just like, am I right. still here okay? Or do I need to go? Or what's going on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, people have lots of questions about uh, their own immigration status, their own pathway to citizenship, whether the current status that they have leads to citizenship. Um, Yeah. And in fact, when you hear folks talk about immigration law in the media, uh, politicians, pundits, etc., you know, a lot of times the nuances and complexity of 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 even the types of status uh, is is blurred um, and, and sort of ignored, I suppose, you know, because they're they're literally um, dozens and dozens of non-immigrant visa categories and many more immigrant visa categories, uh, putting aside various visas, there are other forms of status that are somewhere between having nothing at all and having something on the way to uh, U.S. citizenship. And when I teach this uh, class at Creighton Law School, I find it helpful to kind of put up uh, um, on the on the board for the students, you know, a kind of list of statuses from, on the one hand, someone who has no status whatsoever, what we would, would typically describe as being undocumented, to U.S. citizen, just to illustrate how many different things in terms of immigration status a person can have, um, some of which lead to or are on a pathway to U.S. citizenship and some of which are not. And so, yeah, it's it, it can be very complex. That's incredible. Yeah, I, that's so great that you do that for your students. I think that that's definitely how most people would view it. So how many, if if you had to guess or if you know, since you, since you try to do this activity with your students, how many different statuses are there if it's not just like you're either not allowed to be or be here or you are? Right. Yeah. I've never, I've never like sat down and sort of added them all up, but when I'm doing so, so for example, like in the non-immigrant visa category, you have visas A through V and then some of those visas in terms of letters, right, have subgroups. So, you know, you could be here on a B1 or a B2 visa. There's like F1, F2, F3 visas. Um, so each one of the letters has multiple subgroups that you might fit in. Wow. The H visa is really complex. There are H1Bs, there, uh, which sometimes folks have heard of, H1As, um, uh, various kinds of employment-based uh, immigration visas, uh, various types of U visas. In fact, I have a sheet uh, that I that I sometimes refer to in both the immigrant and non-immigrant visa category, um, and it goes on for like ten or twelve pages with the various uh, categories of immigrant visas. But it's it's well over a hundred different forms of status that a person could, in theory, have. Wow, uh, that's crazy. So the ones that people have heard of, um, like the more quote unquote famous visas, why are they the more famous visas? Like, what are the ones I guess that are used most often? Sure. Um, so I think probably the visa that most people are familiar with is the is the B one B two visa. Um, when when you you come to the the border and someone asks if you're coming in for business or pleasure, right? B one being a, a business related visa. 
So let's say you work for a, a multinational corporation. You're coming into the United States just to meet with some folks in return, but you're not really getting paid by anyone here in the United States to do that work. You might come in on a on a B1 visa. A B2 visa might just be a tourist, right? Somebody that wants to see the Statue of Liberty and, and, and visit Times Square. Um, another common type of visa would be F visas. Uh, which are student visas, and we have lots of international students that come into the United States to study, and so that's another really popular visa. Um, there are also J visas, which is, is another type of student visa that might be uh, applicable for folks who are like Fulbright scholars, for example, exchange students. Right. Um, other visas that would be familiar, depending on who you're talking about, like law enforcement would be pretty familiar with, um, at least I hope they would, <laughs> with U visas and T visas. Um, and these are visas that can be used uh, by law enforcement officials seeking to help individuals without status uh, obtain status so that they can cooperate and work with uh, law enforcement officials in the investigation and prosecution of a crime. Yeah. So... Um, and, and, and like I said, it, this could be a U visa, so victims of domestic violence uh, or other serious crimes, felonious assault. Um, there's there's a list of maybe 12 or more uh, different qualifying crimes in the U visa context. In the T visa context, it would be specific to victims of human trafficking. Um, but it's a huge tool for law enforcement because, understandably, victims of crime uh, would be very hesitant or reluctant to work with law enforcement officials for fear that it might result in them being placed in deportation proceedings, right? Oh, God, right. And so the UDs and the yeah, TVs so are sad. designed, right, right, to give them protection so that they report crimes. And this is an important tool for law enforcement because they need witnesses, right, in order to prosecute crimes against perpetrators. And so if, if, the, if the witnesses or the victims of those crimes are unwilling to go forward, uh, to talk with law enforcement for fear that it might result in their removal from the country, then law enforcement can't prosecute the bad guys. So giving victims access to status is a really important part of, uh, of um, enforcing uh, certain criminal law provisions against individuals that break those laws. Man, that's so sad. I wonder how often that happens with people that obviously don't just don't know about that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 actually um, the other side of the coin. You know, right now it's it's kind of a hot topic to come down on on so-called sanctuary cities. Right. Um, but the but the theory behind sanctuary cities is community policing. And it's this idea that you want local law enforcement uh, to, to team up with local communities. And if local communities are fearful of law enforcement, then crimes don't get prosecuted and the community is less safe. Right. And so the idea that local law enforcement is not just an arm of ICE, of, of the immigration police, um, is, is a key part of community policing. And the, the larger statistics across the country uh, show that. Right. They show in these so-called sanctuary cities, crime is actually lower as a statistical matter in cities that don't have the same kind of sanctuary policies. Mm. Uh, so, you know, some of the recent executive orders we've seen come out from the president has sort of said that these sanctuary cities are coddling individuals that are breaking the law, allowing them to break the law. But the reality is that it's actually the opposite. Sanctuary cities are safer than non-sanctuary cities because the local community members feel safe enough to work with law enforcement. Right. It's the people that are that are having the law broken against them, not the people that are breaking the law that are really the people that are being aided. Yeah, that's right. So outside of visas and these temporary statuses, how many different paths are there to getting a green card and, you know, becoming a, a resident of the United States? Is that more black and white or is that also like, well, it depended on what type of visa you had. It depends on, you know, where you're coming from, what's going on. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's extraordinarily complex. Obviously, that's sort of the the goal of of uh, immigrants within the United States is they'd like to get on a pathway that leads to a green card because if you're able to get a green card or what we call lawful permanent resident status, um, that is in turn a pathway to getting your U.S. citizenship status, which of course is the the gold standard. That's what that's what folks who are living here would like to uh, achieve. Um, and and yeah, it is complex. Not every status leads there. So, for example, TPS, which I mentioned before, temporary protected status, it doesn't lead to anything. It doesn't lead to a green card. It doesn't lead to U.S. citizenship. It's a temporary reprieve from removal. Um, deferred action is the same way. Uh, B-1 and B-2 visas by themselves don't lead to any kind of permanent status. Student visas by themselves don't lead to permanent status. Um, the U visas and T visas, which I've already mentioned for victims of crime and trafficking, those can lead to a green card, uh, but the pathway is, is a really long one. Um, so right now, for example, in the U visa context, backlogs are, are so significant that individuals are having to wait for many, many years before they can even get the U visa. Once they get the U visa, they have to wait three years before they can get a green card. Once they get the green card, it's five years to become a citizen. Um, and the, the reason for the backlog in the U visa context is Congress has created a 10,000 per year visa cap. And so we have anywhere between um, the, num the, the exact numbers, I'm not going to get quite right, but I believe the backlog is somewhere in the, in the range of 70,000 uh, applications waiting. You know, they could be approved, in other words, but... Um, there aren't enough visas available. Hmm. So, you know, folks could be made, waiting for, for many years before they, they even get the U visa, which is itself a, a longer waiting process. And then if you switch over to the family-based uh, context, the, the lines can be even longer. Um, so, for example, um, if you are uh, married to a U.S. citizen, uh, you are what's called an immediate relative. And you don't have to wait out on the visa bulletin. The visa bulletin is a bulletin that's issued by the State Department. It's updated monthly, and it shows where folks are at in the backlogs, the visa backlogs, because each of the categories has a cap on it for how many visas can be issued in a given year. Uh, what happens is any time more petitions come in in that category than there are available visas, the backlog grows a little bit longer. And so in some family-based categories, so for example, brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens, their uh, categories can be extremely lengthy, extremely lengthy. Um, and in the case of individuals from Mexico, which is a country that has a high level of immigration, the wait time um, can actually be many decades. Um, yeah. So if you look at so if you if you were to go if you wanted to check it out for yourself, Google Visa Bulletin, the F4 category is the sibling of a U.S. citizen. If you go to the Mexico category, you'll see what date they're working on. And it's sometime in the early to mid 1990s is the date that they're currently working on. So in other words, people who file the petition at that time, they're just now, right now in 2017, uh, getting a visa to be able to use that. Um, but you can't just look at the difference between the date of the visa they're working on and today's date, because that assumes that visas are processed in real time. So in other words, next year, it's going to be one year in advance, and it doesn't do that. For every year you go forward in real time, the visa bulletin in that category has gone forward maybe three to four months. So your real wait time could actually be upwards of like 60 years if nothing changes, right? Whoa. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, not only in that there are not many lines to get into, but of the lines that there are to get into, um, sometimes the wait time is, is you know, longer than most folks are going to live. So um, 
um, yeah, it's a very, very complex system, and, it, and it, that's just one illustration of why sometimes we say the immigration system is a broken system and needs to be reformed. That is really interesting. So, yeah, so even if, if let's say you were applying when you were 20 years old, if there was going to be a 30-year wait, a 40-year wait, and right. you, even, if, even if you were willing to sacrifice your own life, but you thought, I want my kids to be able to grow up American citizens, well, when you're right. 60... You're not going to be having kids, so <laughs> you, it's right. you know it's just not going to work. Uh, that's right, man. No, that yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, that's a, a lot of times why we point to the fact that the system just isn't working for families to explain why you have folks who are making a very difficult decision to leave their life, to leave what's familiar, to traverse you know what can be a very dangerous uh, territory. Uh, uh, you know, at risk of life and limb uh, to get to the United States, uh, you wouldn't do that if there were a workable, you know, lawful process that was obviously much safer. Yes, one hundred percent. Unless you were, unless you were quite desperate. And so, it, you know, the the number of of undocumented folks in the United States, I think, is more a reflection of of how the laws aren't working, and folks are quite desperate to to be here with loved ones who are who are already here. Yes, you are in incredibly right it's not it, yeah it, yeah absolutely it's uh very sad um so how would you say that we stack up against other developed nations i, I guess not developed nations let's say let's say like the top 10 to 15 nations in the country that people would desire to immigrate to um where how how do our immigration laws and the ability and ease of immigrating here compare to those other places yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, it's kind of an international law question as well, um, because it's it's uh, asking for um, information regarding the immigration laws of other countries in the world, right? Um, and and that is is a is a question that I don't know the answer to uh, fully. I mean, I think in some instances, like take Ireland for example, um, their nationality laws are are fairly generous. Um, so that if you have uh, family members that um, emigrated out of Ireland, you know, many generations ago, um, in many instances, you can, if you can show a connection to that family member and prove up the relationship, you know, uh, the ability to to uh, gain citizenship under Irish law is uh, much broader and more generous than the United States. Um, in other examples, so for example, if a person is uh, a citizen of one of the EU countries, um, there's a lot of freedom, right, to travel and reside within other EU countries. And so if you're thinking of that in the, in the context of immigration, uh, it's it can be quite a bit more generous. Um, however, uh, folks do point out that the United States, in some instances, does have very generous uh, immigration laws. Um, and so in contrast to some developed nations that really try to prioritize uh, merit-based immigration, Right, folks that have something to offer in terms of education or job skills or that kind of thing. Some countries, some developed countries, really favor that over family reunification. And uh, one thing that I think deserves credit in the United States immigration system is that uh, I think, as, as as far as a raw number is concerned, the United States does prioritize family reunification um, over skill-based immigration, just in terms of the number of visas that are allocated to those various categories. So. Yeah, I can't give you an exact uh, comparison in terms of would it be, you know, does does Canada, for example, have a more generous immigration laws than the United States? I, I don't think I'm qualified to 
to answer that particular question. But I know in some respects, the United States immigration laws can be generous and in other respects, uh, more restrictive. Right. Just ups and downs, depending on what area you're looking at specifically. Right, right. Cool. So um, before we get into how kind of the last, let's say, three months or so have been for you and all the different changes and everything that's going on, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you want to become an immigration attorney. I feel like it's a kind of a fascinating thing for, uh, I mean, you look look like just your average white guy, you know, like what what, what (laughs) made you decide that you wanted to be an immigration attorney? Right, right. No, it's a great question. So, you know, I went to law school knowing that I wanted to work in the public interest field and knowing that specifically I wanted to, you know, use my law degree to help folks. Um, I had a real deep interest in international law, specifically international human rights. Uh, But I don't think I had a real sense of focus before I got to law school in terms of what that meant specifically, right? Um, you want to be an international law lawyer or you want to be an international human rights lawyer? Okay, so where do I apply to get such a job, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it was my my international law professor, actually, that um, uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about immigration law. She's also the immigration law professor at the law school I attended and ran the um, legal clinic uh, that focused on representing uh, victims of torture uh, refugees, asylum seekers, etc. And so I got uh, plugged in with her in that law school clinic. And um, that really started to give shape to my amorphous desire to make a difference and help folks um, in that I, I began to learn and see how close of a connection there is between international human rights law and the process of uh, representing asylum seekers here in the United States. Um, the definition of a refugee that's internationally accepted uh, came out of an international convention um, that was uh, signed and agreed to by numerous countries across uh, across the world. Then the United States uh, implemented that convention, um, and it was actually so. The convention was in nineteen fifty in the nineteen fifties that it was signed, and then in nineteen sixty seven, the U.S. signed what's called a protocol, which is sort of our signing on to that convention. Uh, and then that became um, binding here, but it wasn't implemented until the 1980s through the uh, Refugee Act. And so the, the U.S. Refugee Act then uh, created a system for uh, seeking and applying for asylum here in the United States uh, in the process that currently exists today. And so um, there is this real tight, close connection between international human rights law and representing asylum seekers here in the United States. Um, many immigrants that come to the United States that don't otherwise have an option in a family-based setting, in a employment-based setting, if they're fleeing persecution, if they're fleeing uh, torture, if they're fleeing other abuses in their home country, uh, a lot of times the asylum uh, system is the only option that they have to pursue um, and so, yeah, beginning to see that real close connection between international human rights law and the the plight and the situation of many folks who are in the United States desperately need uh, assistance traversing this incredibly complex system. It's It's been called a, a labyrinth that only a council could navigate. Um, it, it, it's one where the, the need for legal counsel is so great. And so I saw this as, as really a, a place where I could hopefully make a difference. And so I represented a young man in that clinic from Chad who who had been tortured because of his father's political activities and um, had the great uh, fortune to represent him through the end where his case was granted and he was um, given protection here in the United States. And um, 
you know, I think in that moment when I experienced that, uh, it sort of sealed the deal for me. I knew, I knew the career trajectory or path that I was going to be on. Man, that is so cool. What a great story. So how interesting then these last couple of weeks must have been for you that a large part of the reason that you wanted to get into this was to work with refugees and stuff. So first of all, you mentioned really quickly that, um, that there is this agreed upon definition of a refugee. Now, if you could please let us know what that is, because, you know, obviously the term refugee has been thrown around, you know, like wildfire over the past couple of weeks. I don't think that a lot of, you know, we all know what we think a refugee is, but what is the actual legal definition of a refugee? Sure. Um, so to paraphrase the, the statute, which, is, which is, um, has a lot of technical language, it's a person who's outside of their country of nationality, who's unable or unwilling to uh, return to that country, either because they've been persecuted in the past or they have what's called a well-founded fear of future persecution on account of one of or more of five different protected categories, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Um, and so um, that's that's it in a nutshell. Individuals who've engaged in persecution themselves, who they have persecuted other people, are, are per se not refugees. It, that's built into the definition of a refugee. Um, but But in a nutshell, that's the definition, the international definition of a refugee, as well as the uh, U.S. definition of a refugee. Um, and so um, where this can become quite complex is when you're dealing with that one social group, uh, oh, sorry, one protected characteristic I mentioned called the particular social group, uh, right? Because what's a particular social group? And the law in this area is a, is a very quickly evolving um, uh, body of, of cases. And so um, that's where a lot of the advocacy comes from in terms of trying to push the envelope to uh, obtain protection for broader groups of people or, or people fleeing conflicts that maybe um, we don't typically think of uh, um, as refugee producing conflicts. So like the, the a real battle for us here um, in the advocacy community in the United States is trying to um, push the courts and push uh, the administrative bodies to issue decisions that would grant increased protection to individuals fleeing um, epidemic levels of gang violence in Central America. Um, mm. You know, in light of all of the thing, terrible things that are going on in the world, right, there are you know, more refugees now than any time since World War II, right? So the refugee crisis is, is really quite significant right now. Um, but you have these areas of in, intense, incredible conflict, like in Syria uh, and other parts of the Middle East. But the, the country with the highest per capita murder rate in the world goes back and forth between El Salvador and Honduras. And uh, Guatemala is in the top five countries, typically for most um, for most of the studies that have been done on this. You know, so they're they're not the countries that many Americans necessarily immediately think of as being these war torn countries. But the level of violence there is quite um, high, and so you have a lot of people fleeing that violence um, that are trying to be classified as refugees here, and finding that the law uh, doesn't look at them in quite the same way as of. Uh, folks fleeing other uh, conflicts, uh, conflict zones. Man, well, that's so hard and difficult, too, because if, like you said, like year after year after year, these places are at the top of the list for murders and violent crime and stuff like that, then at a certain point, this is this, you know, systemic problem there. And, and are we, are, are these countries in the developed world, are, are you just supposed to let in 
what every single person from those countries that's not committing a crime you know like so then what even happens to those countries then what like 100 percent of the good population leaves and only the bad (laughs) population is left and like it it like at a certain point the country obviously needs to sort itself out and and you know effort needs to be made i guess by the developed world to help those countries sort themselves out i yeah i mean it, it does it does to a certain extent make sense that when there is more of an a current acute problem as it were that that that's like okay we need to get these people out of here right now because this is this kind of acute thing going on um versus those long ongoing things have got to be tough it it makes sense yeah i mean when you're looking at immigration law you're also looking at a a lot of concerns of foreign policy which you've, you've just touched upon and you know people will oftentimes float concerns about floodgates and these kinds of issues uh with respect to granting asylum to uh individuals you know south of the border um and so you i think you're right in that it, it really has to be a twofold approach i mean on the one hand I think it's important that we pursue compassionate policies that protect truly vulnerable populations and not send people back to a situation where, you know, there's a very high probability that they will uh, be killed. Absolutely. Um, uh, but on the other hand, not ignoring the the problems uh, that exist domestically in those countries uh, that give rise to large numbers of migrants fleeing, right? So really working with the countries of Central America to try to help them increase security efforts, crack down on uh, the gangs in a way that is, uh, you know, increases security for the local populations. And so, um, yeah, I think it's important to sort of take a both-and approach. So how, this might sound like a silly question, hopefully it's not, how do these people even get in touch with us? Like, especially pre-internet or if the people don't have internet where they're at. Like, if if I live in Africa and I live in a terrible area of Africa and I need to get to America, like, how do I contact America? Like, how do I let them know I'm a refugee? How does any of this take place? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So, you know, if if the individual has family here in the United States, then communicating through family and hiring an immigration lawyer from within the United States may be one option for for folks. If folks are more affluent, sometimes they will, um, you know, look for ways to enter the United States through one of the avenues that we've already talked about, right? Like coming uh, through as a student, for example, is is a route that some folks will take. Um, but if they don't have either of those options, either they don't have family in the U.S. Uh, or they don't have um, uh, the kinds of background skill set assets, et cetera, that would open um, the door for entering through one of the visas that we've already discussed. You know, those folks most often will end up fleeing a conflict zone and going to a refugee camp. Um, and for protracted conflict situations, folks will hang out in refugee camps for an extremely long period of time. The last time I looked at this, I wanted to say the average stay was somewhere between 15 and 17 years in a refugee camp. That's how wow. long people live there typically before they can uh, be resettled elsewhere. And so, you know, in terms of how you get to the United States then, I mean, it's a really, really difficult process to even make it through the refugee vetting and screening process. And the chances that you will actually end up in the United States are extremely small, right? So out of the total number of world refugees that exist right now, only 1% of that number will get resettled anywhere in the United States. Right? And it's something like 1% of that number will actually get resettled in the U.S. 
Right. So, so you're talking about a really, really small group of people. Wait, I'm sorry. Are, so, it, it, the one percent of the original number, one percent of the refugees will get resettled into another country, and only one percent of those people will get resettled in the United States. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. And wow. so, um, and I can I can send you an article that talks about the 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 numbers of folks. But like, so right now, for example, um, under the Trump administration, the number of refugees that have been given per- given permission to enter the U.S. was reduced from 110,000 down to 50,000. Um, but 50,000 is a fairly small. It sounds like a lot, but it's a fairly small number of the total number of refugees that exist in the world. A very very small number. Um, and so uh, uh, the first step then is going to one of those refugee camps, getting getting vetted there. Usually, folks will get vetted. Uh, uh, through UNHCR um, and then get identified as refugees and then referred for potential resettlement. And then in the United States, the process takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months of vetting uh, by U.S. officials um, operating out of refugee camps um, uh, or near refugee camps, processing facilities near refugee camps, to do biometrics checks, which includes taking their fingerprints, taking a photograph of their face, running those against uh, a numerous uh, security uh, checks that the government has, uh, both domestically as well as internationally, um, and it involves in-depth interviews. Um, in many instances, more than one interview uh, for the person to be screened, and um, it's after that lengthy process of 18 to 24 months of waiting, being vetted, um, and, and, and by the way, not just security, also health-wise. So folks will will have health screenings. Um, they'll have to uh, get certain uh, uh, vaccinations before they're allowed uh, to be cleared to come to the United States. Um, and then once they eventually get here. So, you know, the, the, the idea that folks are going to be exploiting refugee flows as a way to enter the United States to uh, attack the U.S. Is, is a bit strange when you look at it within the larger context of, number one, it's highly unlikely you're going to get resettled anywhere. Number two, if you get resettled anywhere, it's highly unlikely that you're going to get resettled in the United States unless you have some tie there already. Uh, number three, you have to make it through that lengthy vetting process and just wait it out. And so compare that with a situation where a person who, you know, look at some of the folks that have been radicalized in Europe, right, and have committed attacks there. Many of those folks are European citizens. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the visa waiver program. The visa waiver program allows people from uh, many of the developed Western nations to just go through a very basic uh, check. Uh, It's not an extensive check. Um, And they don't have to even go to a U.S. consulate to apply for a visa. Right. It's just like when you were if you've ever done international travel, if you go to the U.K., right, we can go basically anywhere. And it's like, no problem. That's right. You just get on a plane, you show up at the border, you show them your U.S. passport, they give you a stamp and you go in, right? Well, we do that same kind of process or a similar process, if you will, for folks from from uh, the U.K., for example, or folks from France, right? But if you, if you were a terrorist organization, right, and you wanted to get somebody into the United States to do an attack on the United States, would you send them to the refugee camp, right, where if they're of the lucky 1% that gets resettled, and then the lucky group of that of that smaller group that gets resettled to the United States and then waits the 18 to 24 months to finally get here, you know, or wouldn't you just find somebody who had a European passport, right, to get here faster? So when, when, you, when you're thinking about the two options for exploiting the U.S. immigration system to conduct an attack, 
it, it makes a lot less sense to use the refugee process than it would other processes. I am so, so, so happy that you have explained all of this. Like, I have had so many conversations with people, I feel like, over the past month or so um, with people that are of the stance that, like, maybe, you know what, maybe we do kind of need to take a time out and really vet these refugees and this and that. And I'm just like, I, I know nothing about anything, so it's hard to, you know, it's hard to take a stance when you don't know anything about anything. But I'm just, but I just, I would say to these people, like, I have to imagine that we are vetting refugees already. There is no way we are not vetting right. these people. Like you talking about that there is a one in 1,000 chance that if you're a refugee, you will end up in the United States. And it's going to take you two years at that to get here. And it, there right. will have been so much screening done. And that's the way it is right now. Like that's right. pre-Trump right. administration, the way that it has right. been handled. I yeah. it, like, thank you for that. Absolutely. I mean, a couple other figures that may be, you know, may be helpful. The Cato Institute, right, which is not known as being a bastion of liberalism, right? The Cato Institute calculates that the chance of being killed in a terrorist attack committed by a refugee is about one in 3.6 billion a year. By comparison, right, the Cato found that um, your chance of being murdered just by anyone is one in 14,000, right? So, so the chances of being uh, actually uh, harmed by a refugee are extremely low. Um, and the head of uh, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services testified in, uh, to Congress in September and said that um, not a single act of actual terrorist violence has been committed by a refugee has undergone that lengthy process that I just explained since 9-11. You know, so, so, the, so the, the idea that refugees are coming in in droves to uh, attack the United States uh, it is just really a myth. I mean, there's just not data to, to, to back that up. Um, and, and to your point, not only is there not data to back it up in the past, because people could still say, well, but things are getting more crazy now. So what does it say? I don't care if it didn't already happen. It's going to happen soon. But if the, right. pro- if the process is that big of a pain in the ass, it, then they're just like you said, there's better ways to do it. If, you, right. if you're a terrorist and you want to attack, that would have to be your last choice for the ways in which you're going to go about doing it. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. So let's uh, let's just talk a little bit about uh, these past few months for you. So first of all, tell us about how things changed just immediately after Election Day. I just from reading articles online, um, it sounds like there was probably a lot more phone calls that you had to deal with and a lot a lot more interest in what you have to do for a living. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously we have a lot of ongoing cases that are that are in our office now, and um, we had a lot of calls from clients, you know, really worried and afraid about how uh, the new Trump administration would would affect and influence their their case. Um, you know, a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric had been uh, a feature of the campaign, and so immigrants of of all stripes, uh, various nationalities, you know, were calling in concerned about how the new administration would affect their case. So I would say, you know, since um, since the election, uh, fear has probably been the predominant thing I've, I've encountered amongst existing and prospective clients. Um, and then, of course, those fears, it, it was interesting because follow, following the election results, I feel like a lot of people were saying, well, it was just campaign rhetoric, right? He was, he was saying <laughs> right, things right. that... Uh, 
you know, he needed to say to get elected, but he's not actually going to do any of this, right? And I, and I heard a, a lot of people saying that, and I'm just like, well, look, I'm, I'm holding out hope uh, that that was just campaign rhetoric and that he's not going to do a lot of the things that he promised. But we can't just bank on that, right? We've got to be prepared for sort of the worst. And um, in the, the series of executive orders that have been released and leaked, right, because there are, um, there are at least six executive orders that I have in mind, three that have, have been official Three that have been leaked and we're, we're afraid will be signed uh, in the coming weeks or months um, that have not only uh, kept true to the campaign promises, uh, if you will, but in many regards have actually gone further. Um, and so um, that's been been fairly jarring, uh, not only for clients, but for those of us that represent clients um, affected by these executive orders and uh, our jobs um Virtually overnight, got a lot more difficult, um, and so yeah, there's been a lot of anxiety within the advocacy community. Yeah, God, what an interesting job to have right now. It's uh, yeah, and there's there's nobody that has a job like you right now. I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about then how things changed for you about whatever it was a week and a half ago um, when the immigration ban went through. Um, what what? How did things change for you? It, during that, like, let's say week stretch or so. And then if that had actually gone on for longer slash, if it ends up coming back, um, since they're appealing the, oh. uh, the, the block on it right now, um, what are the ramifications of all of that for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one thing I would note is of the three executive orders that are, are officially released related to immigration, you know, only one and, and really only parts of one have been uh, enjoined by, by the district court judge in Washington. Um, the other two are, are pushing forward. So um, those, those were the two that got initial attention when they were first released, uh, but, but the attention has obviously shifted to the, um, the uh, refugee and, and Muslim ban uh, executive order um, as that's been grabbing most of the headlines. But I, I would point out that the other two executive orders that were issued a few days earlier um, actually make things a lot more difficult as well. So number one, um, the executive order that's entitled Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States um, pretty dramatically uh, restructures enforcement priorities. Under the Obama administration, the enforcement priorities were, were at least on paper and I think approaching practice were were really to seek to focus uh, enforcement of immigration law against the folks who were sort of the gravest offenders, if you will, right? So that's individuals that had criminal convictions that were a public safety threat or folks who had uh, violated immigration law um, sort of repeatedly, so like your recidivists, right? And, um, and the reason for those enforcement priorities under the Obama administration is just is just a simple question of limited resources and, and how to use those limited resources. So so it's probably helpful to take a step back. The total undocumented population in the United States has hovered right around 11 million, uh, pretty steadily around 11 million. Um, if if anything, it's actually declined slightly um, under the Obama administration. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security estimates that it can it can affect about 400,000 removals a year, right? So you've got 11 million people who are technically, as a legal matter, uh, uh, eligible to be removed from the country under the law, right? Um, but you can only pick 400,000 of that group. So the question becomes, which 400,000 do you choose, 
right? Uh, do you choose mothers with young children? Do you choose kids that were brought here as babies and went to school, have committed no crimes, otherwise productive members of society? You know, do you choose um, the elderly? Do you choose people with health problems? Or do you choose folks that like have serious uh, felony convictions or other criminal convictions? Do you choose folks that are known gang members or present as a national security threat, that kind of thing, right? So the Obama administration said, let's have enforcement priorities that really focus on the folks who are, present a, a, the greatest security threat. And so that folks that are considered a low priority are, are going to be eligible for this thing that, that we call deferred action, right? Which deferred action is just a fancy immigration law term to say that someone is a low enforcement priority, right? Um, so that's the old, the old scheme, the old system. With the executive order that Trump issued, that, that was really shaken up. And, and a new scheme was created that essentially prioritizes everyone, right? Which is a, is a bit nonsensical in the sense that if you still only have resources to remove 400,000, in what sense have you really prioritized everyone? But the way the new enforcement priorities are defined, it, it essentially includes virtually the entire undocumented population um, uh, because of the way the way it works. Um, so ironically, now you might be letting go or not catching some of the people that are doing the, that are committing crimes and things because your resources were spent elsewhere. Unless there is a way to come up with more resources, you will see what happens with that. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's part of his proposal is to come up with more resources, and that's that's certainly a piece of it. Um, and another piece of it, which I think is quite scary, um, is that some of the specifics of that executive order and its uh, partner executive order, the, the Border Security and Immigration Enforcement Improvements Order, um, uh, I think gets at that goal of removing a higher number of people um, using methods which are... Uh, legally suspect, in my view, um, to to get quite specific, it 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 um, there's an existing process called expedited removal procedures, which allow for people, particularly along the border. The way it's uh, traditionally worked is that people who've been in the United States less than 14 days or who are apprehended within 100 miles of the border could have this expedited removal procedure used against them where they can be removed without having the right to a formal hearing before an immigration judge or without being able to assert other forms of defense uh, to removal. Uh, they don't get a full immigration hearing, in other words. Hmm. Well, one of the, the, the aspects of Trump's proposal that hasn't got as much media attention that I've seen is basically taking that expedited removal procedure and putting it on steroids. Um, so, in other words, removing the 14-day limitation and removing the 100-mile limitation to use this against anyone who's in the United States and can't affirmatively prove that they've been here for at least two years. Um, in practice, I'm, I'm afraid what's going to happen is a lot of people who have actually been here for more than two years but, uh, you know, don't happen to be carrying two years' worth of physical presence proof with them are going to get swept up in these expedited removal raids and removed expeditiously before they have an opportunity to seek any kind of defense to removal. And so, you know, in, in one of your questions about, you know, as a practical matter, are, are more folks actually going to be removed? If you would have asked me this question even three or four weeks ago, I would have told you, well, I mean, resources are resources. It's not like suddenly the Department of Homeland Security has resources to remove more than 400,000 people than it did under the Obama administration. So while a new administration may promise to remove many additional people, unless there are new resources or congressional appropriations, I don't see how that's going to happen. But the thing I hadn't thought of is, well, you can tweak the rules 
and make it so that um, you can remove people a lot more quickly. A lot less expensively. Them. Yeah, that's right. By, by, by uh, making it more difficult for them to defend against deportation. And so that's my fear, actually, is that we could potentially see a, a, a huge surge in removals uh, by denying people uh, their due process rights, their rights to actually seek review of this stuff. So, so that's one of the other significant changes in our in our world. I would say that that has uh, that's got a lot of people uh, concerned. And as a practical matter, what we're trying to do to to um, to combat this is uh, advise folks who have no status but who've been here for more than two years to start collecting proofs right now, so that they have a, a nice packet ready to go. Uh, that in the event they do get picked up within a fairly short order, they could uh, submit a copy of that packet to immigration authorities to say, hey, you can't remove me. I've been here for at least two years. Um, it's so but- just to me backwards and bizarre. And, you know, this certainly isn't the only thing of government that is like this. And it doesn't seem to matter under what administration or Democrat or Republican or this or that. But I, I just I can't see and I know I'm certainly not the only person with this opinion like how we don't keep on weeding out the people that are committing crimes, get them out of here and Mm -hmm. everyone else, like the guy that is just picking grapes in California for wine season, you know, or like, or the other thousands of undocumented farmers in California or around the entire country. Why do we not just give these people basically a one time? And like, you're here right now. There's 11 million of you, 10 million of you are totally cool. We're just right. going to make you citizens and you need to start paying taxes immediately. And like, right. who, who disagrees against that? The person has <laughs> got to be so stoked that they are finally don't have to uh, worry every time they see a police officer. They don't have, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're not Absolutely. scared. And then everyone that is complaining about budget and this and that, it's like, these are, these are good people, you know? And there's right. not a lot of people that I know. Like, I just had an episode the other day with a guy that was a, uh, a harvest intern at a winery, and he was talking about the hours that the grape pickers are working, that they're working like, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, and oftentimes they work at nighttime because it it's just a better time to pick the grapes, I guess. It makes for better wine. So sure. these people are working, like starting at, let's say, 8 o'clock at night, and then they're working the next day until like 8 in the morning or something. And it's like, wow. there's not a lot of, and the, you know, and then they're probably not, I imagine, not getting paid overtime or anything. There's right. not a lot of of American citizens that I know that would take that job. That are right. going to work from, you know, out in the field, outdoors, from 10 o'clock at night till 10 in the morning, 8 o'clock at night till 8 in the morning, whatever. And these people just want to do that. Like, they're willing to do that just so they can be here. Like, let them be here, collect some taxes. Um, That way, if they have kids, you you know, they're paying for their own kids way through school and, you know, all these different things. I don't I don't see who disagrees with that. And yet somehow this is uh, (laughs) just that that never comes up is is this thing in politics that never comes up during the primaries is something that that one of the candidates wants to do. It's, It's just beyond me. Right, right. No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many examples that we have of this in the past uh, on both both sides of the issue. If you look at some of the economic benefits that followed the president's granting of deferred action to childhood arrivals, it, the program was uh, famously called the DACA program, right? Um, and is potentially on the chopping block under President Trump. It's one of the leaked memos that hasn't been made official yet. Um, that group of individuals, about 750,000 kids, uh, were granted uh, a two-year uh, 
deferral of their deportation uh, and given the authorization to work. Um, and some remarkable things happened with those kids. I mean, so their incomes increased significantly. The number of taxes then that they're able to pay in, because um, a lot of times folks think that individuals that are undocumented don't pay any taxes at all. Um, but the IRS has created a system through the creation of a number called an I-10, an, an individual taxpayer identification number that allows folks who don't have social security numbers, that's people without authorization to work, to still pay taxes. And so from that, we know that approximately half of undocumented people with no authorization to work at all um, are actually paying taxes to Uncle Sam. No so, way. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people that, you know, they want to pay their fair share. They want to, they want to contribute to the system. And they know that, you know, eventually if there's hope of reform where they can eventually get on a pathway to status, um, they can point you know, to pay, that and say, look, I did this. This is, that's, yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah, that's right. So do you already have a lot of folks paying into taxes and paying into programs, for example, social security, uh, Medicare, that unless a change in the law happens or a change in their status happens, they'll never be able to reap the benefits of those programs that they're paying into. Right. So but you've got these people who are already paying taxes. Um, and so when you had a program like DACA that, that, that takes place, we see that their wages increase, which increases the number of uh, taxes, the dollar amount of taxes that they're paying in. Uh, folks get new jobs. Folks get better jobs. With better jobs, they get uh, health insurance. As more people get health insurance, obviously, cost of health care decreases. There are all of these positive things that come out of uh, giving folks who don't have authorization to work, authorization to work. They're economic benefits. Now, look on the other side. So there are two sides to it, right? Look at Alabama following the anti-immigrant law that it passed that ended up uh, pushing a lot of workers out of the state. There were, there were you know, claims that uh, all of these new jobs would be made available for native-born workers. But what happened was that those jobs were, weren't getting uh, processed. And a lot of uh, farmers in the agricultural sector really suffered following this anti-immigrant push that pushed a lot of undocumented immigrants out of the state of Alabama, uh, resulting in a lot of negative economic consequences for the state of Alabama. 100%. So like, it, it, like this is exactly what you're saying right now is exactly what I was thinking when he was talking about those people picking those grapes is if those people were not there, these wineries would fold. There's, right. they're just, they're not. And if you were a, if you were able to get an American citizen to do that job, you are not going to be paying them eight bucks an hour or something that right. ain't happening. Uh, right. so either the, the cost of your wine is then going to go up to like, you know, 70 bucks a bottle, then no one's going to buy it. And now you're bus- now you're out of business. And right. how was that better for the economy? I mean, basically, I guess exactly right. what you said with Alabama, it just makes sense. It's just logic right. for God's sake. Exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you, Blake. <laughs> so interesting. All right. So right now there's obviously a lot of uncertainty, both, both ways, um, with refugees and immigrants coming into the United States. Um, Federal Judge Robart in Washington made this block on the executive order um, just this past weekend to uh, make it so that uh, people from those seven countries that were prohibited from coming into the United States are, in fact, able to come into the United States now. Um, I guess, how have things changed for you now again since, uh, since that has happened? And... I guess, give us a little bit of background on what allows that all to go down and take place and what might happen going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess first, uh, just kind of to summarize that order, uh, the executive order that was issued, you know, as as you mentioned, it it creates a ban, uh, a 90-day ban on nationals of Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, 
and Yemen. It also reduces the number of refugees to be admitted uh, in 2017 from 110,000 down to uh, 50,000. It's also probably important to note that um, uh, the majority of those 50,000 actually have already been processed. So from now until the end of fiscal year 2017, um, if that number 50,000 stays steady, as a practical matter, that, that will mean not a lot of refugees for the rest of the year uh, coming into the United States. Um, you've got general suspension of the refugee program from 120 days, uh, as well as, as a few other uh, um, uh, uh, parts of that executive order. And so, as you alluded to, yes, lawsuits were filed um, very shortly after that executive order was issued. Uh, originally, there was a judge in New York that enjoined uh, parts of the program. There was another judge in Boston that uh, blocked or enjoined other parts of the program and prevented individuals from being removed from the affected countries. Uh, but all told, there was I think there have been more than 50 lawsuits filed against that order uh, since it was issued um, not too long ago. <laughs> but of course, one of the most significant ones uh, that, that you mentioned is the order issued by the Washington uh, judge, Judge Robart, um, that uh, implemented a nationwide uh, injunction uh, barring um, uh, major aspects of that uh, executive order from, from going into effect. And so it's really been a roller coaster ride since the initial order was issued, uh, even up until uh, today, uh, February 7th. Um, uh, in terms of tracking how that order is being affected. Um, how it affected us, you know, we do have clients from the countries uh, that made it on the list and, you know, immediately those folks were, were very afraid uh, and had questions about how the order would uh, affect them. Um, the clients that I do have from those countries are predominantly asylum seekers and so doing our best to reassure them that, um, you know, the order really shouldn't affect them in their case as it exists here in the United States, since they're not seeking to come into the United States. Uh, but then learning uh, not long after the order was issued, um, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services issued some internal guidance to individuals to stop processing all applications from individuals from those countries. So that even meant that clients who I had who had pending work authorization or pending applications for temporary protected status, um, their applications were put on hold and, you know, there was a lot of fear and anxiety surrounding whether or not those applications would, you know, when, if at all, they would begin to uh, be adjudicated uh, moving forward. So those were some things that immediately affected folks. Um, I had other clients who had family members that were slated to come into the United States. Um, and, of course, they, they were told that they were no longer allowed to board the plane. Um, and in addition, I work with a couple of refugee resettlement organizations and I, I heard reports from two of the, the three resettlement organizations that we have here locally reporting that um, individuals who had had tickets that were slated to come into the United States, they'd gone through that lengthy uh, refugee vetting process we'd already talked about, they were cleared to come in, and their uh, flights were canceled and, and, and not allowed to get on the planes to come to the U.S. So um, it's, been a, it's been a wild ride. The, the latest I've heard is that since the, since the order has been enjoined by the federal judge, uh, that uh, refugee uh, processing has resumed. Uh, some of the folks with canceled flights have had a new flight scheduled for them. Um, and, um, uh, you know, some individuals from the affected countries are, are now being allowed to board planes to come back to the United States. Uh, but it's, it's really been chaotic. And um, I suspect it will continue to be chaotic until we get additional clarity on exactly what parts of the order will be allowed to stand and, and which ones will be 
um, um, blocked. Man, it's just so terrible on so many fronts, and not the least of which is like it just shows such a lack of unity and of just knowing what's going on, you know. And like, it's just, um, man, it's it's weird. So what what happens? What happens now? So uh, Judge Robart blocked this order, and yeah. w- like I know that this is being appealed um, right. by the Justice Department. So what happens with this appeal? Um, how long is that something like that most likely going to take? And if that appeal goes one way or the other, and, and also who who rules on that appeal? Um, and then yeah. if that appeal goes one way or the other, what would then the next steps be? Sure. Um, so right now, the parties are, 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 are preparing and submitting briefs uh, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to try to overturn the um, what we call a temporary restraining order, or TRO, that enjoined enforcement of the program. And so the case right now on that particular piece of the case is before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, they will hear uh, arguments, receive briefing on the issue, and then issue a decision. And depending upon the outcome of that decision, uh, one or 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 well, one or the other of the parties may wish to um, seek further review of the case by taking it up to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and one way or another, I do suspect that this case will eventually make it to the Supreme Court uh, to have uh, the justices weigh in on whether or not uh, this kind of ban is lawful uh, or is an executive overreach. Interesting, man. It's uh, an interesting time to be alive. I will say that much. And uh, an interesting time to be you, uh, to be sure. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, but, you know, like I've said, I, I, think, uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities for attorneys to step up and to, uh, to do, do what we can to resist these kinds of policies, uh, to try to stand up for folks um, that, you know, don't otherwise have a voice. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to be uh, able to work with folks like this, affected by the, these orders, and to uh, try to resist these policies that are, that are unjust. Love it. It's an honor to even speak with someone like you that is doing these great things. It uh, <laughs> makes me wish that I was doing more. So uh, let's start to wind this thing down, Shane. Um, okay. First of all, how have your views on immigration changed since you started down this path? Because it sounds like you were obviously very open and wanted to help people so much already when you started down this path. Um, have there been kind of any ways in which you've changed or things that have come to life for you since you've worked more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... I think this is true for anyone who moves from a position where they're thinking about an issue in the abstract to a place where they see the faces of the people that that policy affects, right? I mean, it's one thing to say you're going to be really anti-illegal immigration, right? But if you've never sat across the table from an undocumented immigrant and heard their story and heard the things that they had to go through to get here, heard the things that they went through that propelled them to leave all that was familiar to them, right? To come to a different country, a new place, to seek out a new life. Until a person has heard that story, um, I, I could see how they might have very harsh and unbending views of immigration. But once you've heard that story and you've seen that human being and you said, man, if I were in your place, if I were in your shoes, and I was experiencing the things that you experienced, heck, I would have done the same thing. And I think a lot of people feel that way once they learn more about the issue and more about the people that are affected. And I think this is true for me as well. As I met more and more individuals 
that we're faced with these incredibly excruciating decisions. Um, in some instances, you know, young kids, teenagers who are like, I- I've got to leave my family. I've got to leave what's going on here because the gangs are coming after me. They say they want me to join. If I join, I'm going to be forced into doing a whole bunch of things I don't want to do. If I don't join, they're going to kill me. And I've got nowhere safe to live in my country. I've got to leave, you know? And so, um, you know, if you, once you meet that person, I, I don't know how your views can't change. And, and, I, and I'm no exception. You know, my views on immigration have only become more compassionate as I've become uh, more exposed to the, to the stories of the people who've gone through these really difficult situations. People who love their kids just as much as I love my kids. People who want a, a future for their kids just like I do. Uh, and people who would be willing to sacrifice greatly to ensure that that future for their kids um, is, is good and possible. Um, you know, really decent people making very difficult situations in very difficult circumstances. Um, um, and so, yeah, my, my views have definitely uh, softened to become more compassionate, I would say, um, as I've been exposed to, to, to more of the, the factors that push and pull people uh, to migrate to the United States. Man, that's beautiful and sad and everything. <laughs> A lot of emotions around what you just said. Um, yeah. And uh, let's go ahead and finish up with any sort of parting words of advice, wisdom, anything like that for, um, I guess you almost kind of handled it already for, for people, which is to just try to have some compassion and empathy. Um, so maybe any parting words of wisdom or advice for um, immigrants or people with family members that live outside of the United States. Um, yeah, so I guess for like the non-immigrant listeners, I would suggest, you know, get plugged in somewhere, learn more about the issues, learn more about the stories of the people affected by immigration policy. You know, it's it's easy to think of it in black and white terms uh, if you're looking at it just as raw data, raw numbers, uh, pure policies divorced from the human impact. Um, I think folks uh, would grow and benefit tremendously, um, you know, by spending a little time and volunteering with a nonprofit that provides free legal services or low-cost legal services uh, to undocumented immigrants just to, to learn some of those stories and get more exposed to the issues. Um, uh, so that, that would be, a, I guess, some parting wisdom to the, to the non-immigrant community. Any, any, any members of the immigrant community listening in, um, you know, I think, I think the, the best thing that I can share is that, you know, there are a lot of folks uh, in the United States and specifically within the legal community, within the larger advocacy community, that are um, that are here for you. Um, there's a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, coming from the president, coming from policymakers, um, but that's not representative of the views of the majority of Americans. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people polling uh, for immigrant communities. Your value in the United States uh, is tremendous. Uh, it's 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 beneficial, um, and and we want you here. We want to welcome you. Love it, man. Shane, thank you so much. Uh, this has been such a pleasure. You've educated me so much. And uh, and I know you're like so busy with everything that's going on right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Blake. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes. 
click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.